Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech thee, Iodias, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, ye Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only... For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God." But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May the Lord grant his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his most holy word, you may be seated. Well, as we have seen in the last few weeks, this letter to the Philippians from the Apostle Paul is filled with wonderful instruction and with deepest affection uh, that Paul has for these saints at the Church of Philippi. Even though Paul has been bound up in Rome, even though he's in chains, He has exhorted these beloved children in the faith, those who he had very close to his heart, to continue in the joy of the Lord, to continue in that joy with all long-suffering, 
to continue in unity and in a love for one another. In those previous chapters, he's exhorted them to to a number of things, to press towards the prize of Christ Jesus, to continue in the faith, to refuse to wander from the gospel of Christ, and all of this by, by pressing to them a continuing idea of joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. And we'll see that again this week. Last week we saw that Paul concluded his instruction to the Philippian church in the, at the end of chapter 3 by contrasting the destruction of the worldly-minded members of the visible church, those, those people who uh, were in the church, but their, their thoughts, their affections, their desires, their lives looked more like and tended towards the world. He contrasted the, their destruction with the eternal blessing and glory which the heavenly-minded have in Christ Jesus. That those who are in the Spirit and, and have thoughts and desires of the Spirit will enjoy this, uh, this ongoing rejoicing throughout all eternity. And we're taught in verse 21 of chapter 3 that there will be an establishment of eternal joy when the Lord returns. However, Paul doesn't end there because we're not there yet. We're still here. And the Apostle Paul moves in this chapter to exhort those heavenly-minded Christians to continue to live in the joy of the Lord today. Today. Looking forward to that joy that will come, but demonstrate the fruits of that joy today. The outline that I have for chapter 4 goes along these lines. In verses 1 through 3, Paul, with a, a deep affection for this church, Uh, is teaching them that standing fast in joy means standing together. Standing fast means standing together in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 9, we have what I've, I've called Paul's final call to joy and its fruits. Paul's final call to joy and its fruits in verses 4 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 20, describing the support of the ministry that the Philippian church has engaged in, I've entitled that the joy of participating in the gospel. Paul is is describing them the joy that is there in a participation in gospel ministry. And then he concludes in verses 21 through 23 with a final farewell. So beginning in verses 1 through 3, Paul's instruction here is that standing fast, Standing in the joy of the Lord means standing together. Paul repeats in verse 1 what he had started with in chapter 1, in verse 27. He had had told the Philippian church in verse 27 of chapter 1 to stand fast in one spirit. Stand fast in one spirit. Uh, For the Apostle Paul and throughout the New Testament, standing fast means to be immovable in the faith, not wavering, to be fixed. To be firm. It's like a well-pounded nail. You know, you take, you take a two-by-four, you pound it to another two-by-four. If you've missed the mark, it's not going to stay put. But if you pound it well, it'll stay right where you put it. To stand fast is to be fixed and firm. Paul, <clears throat> this is not a new concept in Paul's teaching. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men, be strong. This is a theme in Paul's letters. Notice in Philippians, Paul here in these first verses is particularly concerned with the corporate element of this standing firm. 
This is not just a personal call here. This is a call to the church together to stand firm, to stand fast. He's concerned with the important idea that standing firm means sticking together, standing together. This is particularly seen in how he deals with this dispute between these two women in verses 2 and 3. It's very important to Paul that we be of one mind in our standing firm. Apparently, these two women, Euodius and Syntyche, had come to some great disagreement, enough for him to address them particularly in this letter sent to the church. You know, it's something when you get called out by the Apostle Paul in a letter. Right? You've done something naughty. And he does that here, right? He calls them out specifically and emphasizes the necessity of being one mind in order to stand fast. But he also draws these other folks into it, Clement, and then this other unnamed yoke fellow. He calls them in to help them. It's not just, this is not just lone wolf Christianity, go off and figure it out on your own. This is, you've been brought together, let's work at this together. We can see from this passage that we as Christians are brought together as a visible corporate body in order that we may stand firm in the faith together. When we isolate ourselves from the church, when we behave as lone wolf Christians, when we are at odds with one another, when we are inconsistent in our attendance upon the means of grace, we harm ourselves. But we also harm our brothers. We also harm the steadfast standing of our brothers and sisters together. When we neglect the corporate standing fast of the church, when we neglect the corporate meetings of the church, when we neglect the fellowship of the church, when we keep one another at arm's length, we're really saying to one another, brothers and sisters, my comforts are more important than you. My circumstances are more important than you. And what has Paul done here? Instead of having these ladies run off and fix it themselves or go their own way, he draws the people together in a communion, working together. We, when we draw to one another, when we exhort one another unto love and good works, when we walk in unity, when we participate and encourage the fellowship of the church, when, when we're doing those things, we are actively participating in standing fast in the faith together. Amen. We are demonstrating actively our love for one another. And notice how full of affection Paul's instruction is here. It's full of desire. It's full of longing. These are the longed-for ones. These are people who are close to his heart. These are not simply associates, are they? They're family. They're brothers and sisters. And what a motivation Paul gives then for that corporate standing fast, that corporate unity, that corporate togetherness. You see what it is? Do you see what the motivation is in verse 3? All of our names are written in the book of life. Our names are there, together. There's not individual books of life. There's one book of life. And we're written there together as a family. These are our brothers and sisters. These are those for whom Christ died. These are the ones that we ought to love to be with. The ones from which we hate to be apart. The ones that we hate to have disagreements with. And so Paul draws them together. These are the ones who God has ordained to help us to stand fast in the faith. And notice before we leave this section briefly, how that Paul's, the charge that 
that people make to Paul that he's a misogynist, that he doesn't care about women. Notice how that doesn't obtain. Look how careful he is to ensure that these women are taken care of, that things are, are right. Paul shows a special concern that these women who have labored alongside him, not in the preaching ministry, not in the teaching ministry, but in that beautifying hospitality and service and rooting which women bring to the church. Notice how Paul is very careful to draw them to unity, to, to, set, to set helps alongside them so that they would be taken care for. Don't dare call Paul a misogynist. Amen. He cares for the women of the church because they have a place within the church. Christ himself is concerned that women have their place within the church and that they stand fast in the church together. Amen. All right, then moving to verses 4 through 9, we have Paul's final call to join its fruits. In verse 4, we have that very familiar verse, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now notice this is a command. Many people get confused about joy. They think it's something that just happens to us, or we just happen to find it along the way. But joy is something that is worked at. Joy is something that's grown in us by the Holy Spirit as we attend upon the means of grace. And so here, here is a command to rejoice, to joy and to do it again and again, to, ki- to keep considering the joyful uh, uh, establishment and the state in which you live in Christ Jesus. And so he gives this command, and then he follows up with what I believe is a description of what that joy looks like. In verses, you know, so you get the command in verse 4, and you get that, the duties and the, and the fruits of it in verses 5 through 9. What rejoicing in the Lord means is, verse 5, we live in moderation. There is a, a patient temperance with one another. There's a, a long-suffering aspect of unity and, and joy with each other. In verses 6 through 7, he's really going after the concept and in, in being careful for nothing of, of anxiety. Don't be anxious. Brothers and sisters, anxiety is a sin which we all struggle with. We all struggle with it at different times and in different ways. And anxiety robs us of joy. Amen. But Paul doesn't just say, don't be anxious. Don't be careful for nothing. He gives the remedy. Remedy is peace with God. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, this is not, some people have been confused on this, but they think when Paul says that this peace of God passes all understanding, they think that it means it can't be understood. That this is some sort of of irrational roll your eyes in the back of your head and just lay back and feel it. It's not it at all. In fact, everything that Paul goes on to say after this is a rational uh, thoughtful conception of, an, of ideas, things that you hold on to. And the peace of God, what he's talking about here is that the concept that you are at peace with God, that you have been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus, is so amazing that even though we can comprehend it to a degree, we can't comprehend it completely. We will never be able to understand fully what it means for sinful people to be reconciled and at peace with an infinite God. You'll never get to the bottom of that. The wonderful thing is that we have eternity to work on. But it, it it passes all of the deepest understanding. But it's not irrational. It's not a let go and let God. It's a 
It's a contemplation, and we'll never get to the bottom of it because it's so deep and wonderful. That's what Paul's getting at here. And that is, that is the so- solution to anxiety. When we have anxious thoughts, to contemplate our reconciliation with God. If God has done that for us, why do I need to worry about anything? Right? And how is this found? Paul isn't just content to say, let it go, just do it, just have it. But it's found in the means of prayer, isn't it? Right? It's in the means of prayer. Um, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We, We obtain this peace through the means that God has given us. If we're struggling with anxious thoughts, where have we, where have we been in our prayers? And even if we've been close in our prayers, pray more. And pray more. And pray more. Can you pray too much? Not when Paul says, pray continually. <laughs> right? In verse 8, then, we see another, another one of those, those results of joy and also the means of obtaining and keeping joy meditating upon the true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and commendable things. Joy results in thinking about those things, and joy is cultivated by thinking about those things. Right? It's this ongoing endeavoring after joy. This means that we don't think about some things. We set those things out of our minds, and we set our minds consciously, rationally, thoughtfully, carefully upon these good things. And then finally, uh, the fruits and the, the means of keeping up this joy is also found in verse 9. Follow in the godly examples that God has given you. Paul says, follow me. Now, we wouldn't want to follow any of the sinful things. Paul's not saying that. But follow the godly example, the tenor of his life, the, the, the trajectory of his life. Right? Follow after what Paul has done. And what, what, what had Paul done? He had, he had given up all to serve Christ. And he had found joy in doing so, hadn't he? There was no joy in the hateful vengeance that he sought to bring against the, the disciples in that early church. But he found joy on the road to Damascus, didn't he? And so we, we follow in those good and, and godly examples. And, and we don't want to compromise what's been given to us by these folks. We, Paul tells Timothy that, that he has a treasure that he is supposed to keep in store. We've, been, we've received a treasure, and we hold on to that that's been given to us by our godly examples. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, let's follow in after those godly examples. Then we move to verses 10 through 20, the joy of participating in the gospel. In verses 10 through 20, we see that Paul's joy in serving God through the ministry is on display. And, it, and it, it's a joy... That, that is, is found, as we've seen before in Philippians, in want. It's found in abounding. It's found in, in not having what you need. It's found in having more than what you need. It's found in knowing that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, regardless of what position he's put me in. Right? This, this does go back again to that concept of being reconciled with God. If the infinite God has reconciled a, a miserable sinner like me by the blood of Christ... Won't he do everything else for me too? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But then we also see Paul's commendation for the generous spirit that the Philippians had as they participated in that joy with him. 
in the ministry of the gospel. Although God had not called those Philippians to, to go out on the mission field, not called them to preach and to teach, not called them to leave behind everything and, and go on with Paul, he had given the men and women of the church the opportunity to participate in the ministry through the physical support. And this is a really important thing. We, and you can, you can be sure that they were praying for Paul, but they also added to it the physical support. And this is real participation. This is real participation. And it may involve money, but maybe not. Right? There was a giving and a service that was demonstrated on the parts of the Philippians. And, and Paul noted even that there were times when they couldn't give because they lacked opportunity. In other words, there were times when, when they couldn't, they didn't have money. Well, they shouldn't give then because they need to take care of the things at home. But there was a time then when, Paul, when God gave them an opportunity. And so they gave their support. They, they offered gifts unto Paul, and, and that may have come in different ways. It may have been food, that may have been money, it may have been clothes. It, it was all sorts of different things. But what we, what we see here is that the, the, uh, the participation in the gospel is from a spirit of generosity and service and hospitality. This is the commendation that these Philippian Christians um, pre- uh, um, they presented, they bore a testimony of service in their hospitality and their generosity. They would spend of themselves and be spent. They would give. And notice then how God views those gifts in verse, in verse 18. They are well-pleasing sacrifices. Your service, your hospitality, your generosity are not just They're not lost on God because they're physical things. No, God says those are well-pleasing sacrifices, a sweet odor. Ladies, those those crockpots that you put together on Saturday nights for Sunday fellowship meals, that is service unto the Lord, and that is participation in the ministry. That hospitality, when you bring people into your homes, when we welcome people with open arms, when we sit and we fellowship together, that is that is service unto Christ Jesus. Amen. And that is participation in the gospel ministry. These are the things that advance church, that advance Christ's kingdom. This is the generous spirit, giving of your time on a Saturday evening to make food when you don't want to. That's service unto Christ Jesus. And if we come and expect to just feed upon the sacrifices of others, there is a selfishness in that if we don't participate within that. And so the call to us then is to participate with joy in hospitality, in service, in generosity. Now we're all going to have different opportunities. We will lack opportunities at some time. When we have our opportunity, let's take it and offer those sacrifices unto Christ Jesus. Amen. You may not be called to preach, you might, be called, might not be called to minister or lead, but we are all called to serve, especially one another. Let us serve and not expected to be served. And then finally we move in verses 21 through 23, Paul's concluding farewell. Paul concludes with praises to God, noting particularly that God is to be considered as our Father. And though we be weak and miserable sinners... 
We are to consider God as a loving father who nurtures and corrects us, cares and disciplines us rather than an impersonal force. He is our dear father. Paul is careful here to include every saint in this conclusion. And this should remind us that every sincere professor of Christ has a place in the kingdom. Boys and girls, you're included in that conclusion. You're included in that blessing. Let no one look down upon you because, of your, because you're young. But set an example for the believers. You're included in that blessing. Children, women, the, the elderly. It's, the place in the kingdom isn't just for theologians and those in their ivory towers or who write books or, have, or for the John Calvins and the John Knoxes and the people who, have, who God was pleased to do mighty things in their age. The kingdom is for you. And you're included in that blessing. The privileges of the church are not just reserved for the great. Therefore, all who profess the name of Christ. And then notice finally that the gospel reaches to every corner, even the darkest corners, even to Caesar's household. Notice how far the gospel had come in such a short period of time. Is there a place the gospel can't get As an electrician, I often say that you can't keep water out of anything. You can try. Down to the molecular level, it will sneak into a box and it will cause problems. The gospel is better than water. It goes wherever the Spirit sends it. So this ought to remind us about how we pray for people, even those who seem to have the hardest of hearts. The question is not how hard the heart is. The question is, will the Spirit move? Is that where the Spirit's going? And we plead with our Father to send His Spirit according to His good purpose. Because when He sends the Spirit, even the darkest places get light. Even Caesar's household. Thus ends our look at the book of Philippians. And let us turn then in our Psalter and stand as we sing Psalm 133a. We we spoke about the corporate nature of standing fast. And Psalm 133, is, is, it's the psalm we often sing at the end of our presbytery meetings, how good it is for brethren to dwell in unity. So let's sing about what we just contemplated. Psalm 133a. Like the 